You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is episode three. Today I'm going to be sharing one of my own keynotes. This is called We Become Stories. What I wanted to talk about is the importance of story and the importance of living out your story in collaboration with God. And I'm going to be sharing a lot from my own story, sort of as the premise for for that line of thought. I journal a whole lot, and my entire journey, the story of my life, the story of God's life in me, is in these pages. Uh, The miracles that remind me of why I believe what I believe, the difficulties that made me say, where are you, God? You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, they're all on these pages. The the process, the dirt of life (laughs) is on these pages. And one thing that I do every year is in January, I take the first three weeks of the year and I set it apart and I fast and I pray and I seek the Lord for the upcoming year and I reflect on the past year. And I use my journal from the previous January as my roadmap for this January. And it's just been an incredible discipline that I've cultivated in my life because I'll take that journal from the previous year and I'll look at all the prayers that I prayed and then I, and I, I meditate on it and I process through the year and how that happened, which prayers were answered, which things are still in process, and which things did I forget to give him praise for accomplishing, you know? And just go over the whole thing. And this year I did that again, and I just got blown away at, at, at seeing things that, you know, we're good at forgetting stuff that God does. Sometimes we're so busy looking for a word from God, and the only word we need is to remember what he already spoke, you know? But as I thought about all this, I I said, well, you know, what is a story? And a story is basically a character who wants something and goes through conflict to get it. That's the crude material of any story. It's, It's a character that wants something, that desires an outcome, that desires something, and then goes through conflict to get it. You know what's interesting is you and I, we're all becoming stories. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share more on that, but you know, that, that's the one thing everybody in the Bible has in common, is that they all became stories. And 2,000, 4,000, however many years later, we're reading these printed words of their lives and finding hope and encouragement for our own. Last year uh, was a very difficult year for me and for my wife um, in a lot of ways. It, was, it, it had wonderful things about it. It was a difficult year as well. And I felt like the Lord whispered to me and he said, Stephen, your story is not composed of the things that happen to you. Your story is how you respond Your story is not what happens to you. We're not victims. But our story is how we respond. And there was one day that I was, um, I was sitting in an oil change station. 
I began reading this uh, story. I, I love reading children's stories. Uh, some of my main influences are Dorothy and Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland, and these guys have led me to the Lord more than many things. But I'm, I'm reading this uh, children's story um, called Wandla, uh, and it's like a science fiction children's story, and the, the main character's name is Eva Nine. And this character, Eva Nine, is talking to somebody in this story. And she says, the toil of this journey, our journey, is the map for those who will follow. (laughs) And in that moment, the Spirit of God spoke to me through a little children's novel science fiction novel and my whole world broke open in the middle of this oil change place the toil of this journey our journey is the roadmap for those who will follow and i wrote this in my journal i said this simple phrase uttered from the lips of a young adult sci-fi fictional character may have altered the course in history of my life it gave me a perspective that saved me from throwing it all away and quitting and made me suddenly realize my dreams, my pursuits, my choices are not so much about personal fulfillment as they are about the story, the roadmap I leave to my children and those who I trek with. My decisions are their roadmap. This is both scary and motivating. (laughs) And I began to think about it. We all become stories. And at the end of the day, it's the decisions that we've made. It's the, it's the, it's the, the roadmap that we leave behind that, that speaks beyond the length of our own lifetime. Uh, I listened to this, this podcast called On Creative Writing. And, and in this podcast, he said, you know, um, human beings don't really change that much unless we're forced to. and he went on to talk about in literature and in story there's something called the inciting event that sets the story in motion and the inciting event could be uh, Frodo realizing that he's got to leave the Shire the inciting event could be Alice following the rabbit into the rabbit hole. It could be Dorothy getting swept up into the tornado, Peter Pan coming to Wendy and her choosing to fly out the window with him. What is the inciting event? What is the moment that shifts us from normal, everyday life, accepting things that happen to us into the extraordinary adventure with God? What is that exciting, inciting (laughs) and exciting moment? And... I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. And he begins to encourage us that we we can create our own inciting events in our lives and that uh, there are moments where we can actually propel ourselves into action to change our lives and and to see them to be more like we want them to be. And I began to think this, and I felt like the Lord shared this with me for you guys. Prayer is the place where we discover the plot line to the story of our lives. Prayer is the place where we discover the plot line to the story of our lives. Prayer is an intrinsically, amazingly creative place. And so what's interesting is, is this creative writing podcast, 
he began to endorse this book by Donald Miller. If you guys know who Donald Miller is, he wrote Blue Like Jazz and several other books. And I was shocked that this guy was endorsing a Christian book. And he basically uh, said, you need to go out and get this book. And the book wrecked my world again. Let me read you something from Donald Miller. <laughs> Here's the truth about telling stories with your life. It's going to sound like a great idea, and you're going to get excited about it, and then when it comes time to do the work, you're not going to want to do it. <laughs> it's like that with writing books, and it's life, like that with life. People love to have lived a great story, but few people like the work it takes to make it happen. Joy costs pain. I thought that was profound. And the Lord began to say things to me like, Stephen, your fulfillment depends on what you do to serve others. He said to me, Stephen, if you want to be fulfilled in your art, if you want to be fulfilled in your life, then help others find their own greatness. If you want to find fulfillment with you, then you use your art and your gift as a catalyst. See, we often talk about the artist Oh, he's gifted. He's been given a gift. She's been given a gift. And I think that's twofold. It's like, yeah, someone may have been given a gift, but it's a gift meant to be given. And in that regard, all art is generous. All art and all creative expression is meant to be given. When you look at the Lord's creative process, that's what you see there, is that he gave says all creation was made for his son in Hebrews. And when I began to, to, to feel that and to, and to begin to think, who is my art and who is my life meant to love? Who am I compelled to love on? Who is my art sent to serve, you know? Then my frustrations began to break off and I began to uh, embrace the journey and embrace the road map. But I want to ask you guys a question. If your life, if you were an author and your life is the book that you're writing and you're the, you're the character in that book, what would you do differently to make that a good story than what's actually happening in your life right now? <laughs> now we're getting real. If you viewed your life as a story, if you viewed your life as a book to be read, how would you respond differently to the things that happen in your life? Your life is a story. What decisions would you make differently? See, the inciting event of the story, he says, most of us, we would accept the difficulties and the things we don't even like about our lives because it's much easier to live in leth lethargy, it's much easier to let life happen to us than it is to leave the shire and go into the unknown. I'm going to read a poem really quickly of my own devising. I made this book for you guys that weren't here over the weekend. Um, I just finished this new book of poems. I've been editing this thing for probably 10 years or so, and it's called A Strange Innocence. And we have them here. But I wrote this poem called The American Drone. 
And obviously it's a play off of the American dream. But it's called the American drone. And it's about what happens when we don't live our lives as a story, but we choose apathy instead. It says, the pursuit of comfort is a restless vocation, a suit and tie of docile wisdom and well-groomed choices. Our lives toggle between necessity and hope, in muscle memory, in medication, in self-help techniques we learn from others to help us cope. We hunger for adventure, yet coddle the familiar, living vicariously through television screens, in remote-controlled simulation, and acquired fear of the unknown, Welcome the American drone. Have we auctioned our hearts to an automated dream in prefab devotion to a modular scheme? Let us see the world from the rooftop again, just because we can, and we must, lest we settle too quickly in still life monotony. We need the unruliness of mystery, the frenetic howl of spontaneity, for the pioneers seem to have lost their way and the road less traveled has been paved. <laughs> One of the beautiful things I love from the Bible is that at the end of the whole story in Revelation, Jesus says, we overcome by two things. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and what? The word of our testimony. Isn't that fascinating? See, testimony is a word that we don't use much outside of Bible talk or court systems. But testimony is story. What's your story? What's your story? <laughs> what is a story you're telling through your life? What, you know, and we talked about it over the weekend. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's poems sent to do good works, sent to have an effect and influence in the world. So what is the poem? What is the parable that God is speaking through our lives? And I want to suggest you're like, if our story is in a place of unresolve, or if, if you feel like the story is negative, I want to suggest that the story is not over. And even if your life is a three-part epic saga, don't give up yet. <laughs> it's always the darkest right before dawn. And he leads us forth in triumph, even if the seed falls to the ground and dies first. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our story. This one is for free and for fun. But you know, fiction writers will all tell you this. Even if they start out with a preconceived idea of where their story is going to go, every fiction writer I've ever read says, I can't control my characters. My characters do things I did not set out for them to do. And I think it's a beautiful picture of sovereignty and free will. But you know what? As a writer myself, um, one of the most beautiful 
moments an author has is when the character surprises him. And when you think you know where the story is going, but then this character does something so out of left field, and if you're faithful to journal the story as it comes, you have to let him walk that thing out, even if it deviates from what you were doing. You know, does anybody understand what I'm saying? Like, if you read some of these authors, you know, and you can do the theology on this. I'm not trying to give a theological stance on this, but somehow, I mean, obviously, I do believe that God is omniscient. I also believe that God likes to be surprised. And how that works out, I don't know. <laughs> but I think he enjoys the joy of discovery with us. I think Papa loves it. He loves to stand back and watch. How many times did the Bible said he wanted to see what, what happened? <laughs> I don't know. It's just fun for me. And so I began to say to the Lord through all this, Lord, I, what is the inciting event? Lord, okay, let's write this story. What, what would I do differently in my life if I began to view you're the author and you're the finisher of our faith, but you have called us to co-create in the story with you. And you say that our story, the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony is how we overcome. What would I do differently? And a good story is one that involves risk, danger, uncertainty, and adventure. That's a good story. And so for me, I'll just be honest with you because I haven't finished working this out. I've, Matt said it this morning, um, you know, the, the dirty little secret on the street about me is that I'm a business owner as well as an artist. And in some circles, that's like you've got leprosy or something. <laughs> you mean your music's not good enough for you to be doing this full time? You mean that, oh, well, don't get too close to me. Huh? <laughs> See, I had to face my fear with that thing, and I'm still facing my fears with that thing. I'm a window cleaner. <laughs> I own a window cleaning business. I bought it 10 or so years ago, and I've had a love-hate relationship with this thing the whole time. The love part of it is, is I felt like I was sticking it to the man because I was like, finally, I've got a business that can pay my mortgage and support my family while I'm ministering in Australia, and I don't have to rely on the church to pay my bills. I can do what I'm called to do without a financial motivation. So that's the beauty of it. And I've done that for 10 years, but I'm at a point where I'm so tired of doing that. <laughs> I'm so done with it. I just want to support my family from what I love doing fully. And the Lord brings money from that often, and he's blessed us so many times through that as well. But art is a labor of love, guys. And y'all know that. I'm preaching to the choir, but, but it's a labor of love. Any other motivation makes it propaganda, I think, you know. Art's a labor of love. But anyway, so that's something I'm still working through. There's a story in one of those books that you rarely hear preached from, Numbers. <laughs> you know you're in trouble when he says, turn with me this morning to Numbers chapter 20 and 1. You know that you're about to get smitten with some hail, fire, and brimstone preaching. <laughs> but that's not what I'm doing, but this is an interesting story, and I brought it up <laughs> the other night. 
It's the story of the bronze serpent. Remember, if you were here the other night, I started talking about a little bit of how, about the bronze serpent and how um, Moses was instructed to make this thing. Anyway, I wanted to share it just for a minute. It's um, Numbers 21, verse 4. It says, They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone... Then he looked at the bronze serpent and lived. That's an intense passage. I mean, forget the fact that it said the Lord sent the fiery serpents on him. I'll let you deal with that one on your own. (laughs) For me personally, I think it's just an outcome of what they had opened in their lives. See, what happened is this should have been a three-week journey, and it's a 40-year journey happening here from Egypt to the promised land, right? You've heard folks say that a lot before. If they had just done a straight line, they could have gotten there in three weeks, but they were in the desert for 40 years. Does anybody else feel that way? (laughs) You didn't raise your hands. So I'm the only one that's been out in the desert. The rest of you Christians are just skipping through it. So I'll I'll work through my own sin up here then. I'll encourage myself. (laughs) See, what happened is their timeline was different from the Lord's. And the people became discouraged along the way. Disappointment and discouragement got in there and started festering. And what came out of that is that their testimony was perverted and polluted. Because they were no longer functioning or speaking from a place of faith. But they were now speaking out of discouragement. And it says they spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water. And then that one, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That worthless bread was supernatural provision. And so the result of their discouragement, the result of their speaking a negative testimony, speaking a negative faith. Now see, look, I struggle with this because I'm not telling you we've got to tell the world that our lives are beautiful Christian lives and we never have any struggles and this is faith. I'm not saying that's our testimony, but what I am saying is that if you're in a place of unresolved, be in that place and be real about the place you're in, but also remember that he leads us forth in triumph from glory to glory, and that if the seed falls to the ground and dies before the resurrection life comes, be in that place, but don't put a period where God's putting a comma when you're writing your story. So the outcome of that mindset was that the enemy gained access to their lives. Discouragement, 
bad speaking, negative faith, suddenly there's serpents in their midst. Suddenly people are being bitten. Suddenly people are, are dying. People are afraid. Fear gets in. Sickness came in. All this stuff came in. And let me say this too. Don't hear from what I'm saying that if you've said negative things or if you've been in that place that you're going to bring stuff on yourself. Please don't hear that. I am not suggesting that at all, okay? I want to nip that thing in the bud just in case somebody takes that wrong. I'm not saying, please hear me that. I'm not suggesting that. But what happened is the enemy got in there and they were fear, they were full of fear and they came to Moses in a repentant heart and they said, look, we recognize we have sinned. We've spoken against God and we've spoken against you. Please pray that the Lord would take these serpents away from us. So the, so the Lord prayed for the people. And I love this. The Lord said to Moses, okay, I want you to make this sculpture. What do you want me to make the sculpture of, Lord? I want you to embody through this work of art a manifest physical depiction of their greatest fear. I want you to create a work of art that is the embodiment of everything they're afraid of. And so I, lo- I made the point the other night, I thought it was awesome that the Lord didn't tell him to make a bronze serpent. Moses chose bronze for his own medium to work in. And I just thought that was a cool picture of the collaborative process between us and God. He, he, you know, but that's not my point this morning. He made this picture and what happened is this. When they stared those things in the face, when they, he raised that serpent up on a pole, and when they stared that thing in the face, that disappointment, that discouragement, that unresolved thing, that, that thing in their lives that they couldn't control, that thing that didn't turn out the way that they thought it should, that when they stared that storyline in the face that wasn't working out the way they thought the story was supposed to work out, when they stared it in the face, and at the same time, repented and had and declared the goodness of God in the midst of that, healing happened. And the serpents were driven out of their story. When we can stand in the midst of our incompletion and say, I am complete in you. When we can stand in the midst of the unresolved and say, all things resolve in you. then he begins to move. And you know what is so incredible about this passage right here? I love this. The very next verse says, and now the children of Israel moved on. (laughs) And guess what the next thing happened was? In verse 16, from there they went to beer. They went to a pub. No, just kidding. (laughs) Which... Which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. And then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well. All of you sing to it. Spring up, O well. They stared that fear in the face and then they moved on. And the next thing that happened is that they're singing, spring up a well. They're prophesying to themselves in that moment. They're, they're, they're inspiring themselves. I love it what he said to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, say, prophesy to the breath. Inspire yourself. Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Live. 
they began to sing, spring up a well. And this is cool. The, 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 the next thing that happens is that in verse 20, it says they moved on to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. So here's the story I'm telling you. They got discouraged because the story wasn't working out the way they thought. The enemy gained access into their lives. They repented. And then they moved on. They began to sing in the midst of that place. Because their circumstance really didn't change that much. But they sang. And the next thing that happened is that they gained a heavenly perspective above the wasteland. Isn't that good? But I'm going to end with one other passage from Donald Miller's book. And, and the book is, um, I think it's called a, a Million Miles in a Thousand Days or something like that. It's a really cool book. The whole thing is about story and process and living our lives as a story. But I'm going to end with his words. It's like this when you live a story. The first part happens fast. You throw yourself into the narrative and you're finally out in the water. The shore is pushing off behind you and the trees are getting smaller. The distant shore doesn't seem so far and you feel the resolution coming. The feeling of getting out of your boat and walking that distant beach. You think the thing is going to happen fast. That you'll paddle for a bit and arrive on the other side by lunch. But the truth is, it isn't going to be over soon. The reward you get from a story is always less than you thought it would be, and the work is harder than you imagined. The point of the story is never about the ending. Remember, it's about your character getting molded in the hard work of the middle. At some point, the shore behind you stops getting smaller, and you paddle and wonder why the same strokes that used to move you now only rock the boat. The shore you left is just as distant and there's no going back. There is only the decision to paddle in place or stop, slide out of the hatch and sink into the sea. Maybe there's another story at the bottom of the sea. Maybe you don't have to be in this story anymore. This is when most people give up on their stories. They get in the middle and discover it was harder than they thought. They can't see the distant shore anymore and they wonder if their paddling is moving them forward. None of the trees behind them are getting smaller and none of the trees ahead are getting bigger. They take it out on their spouses and go looking for an easier story. It's like this with every crossing and with nearly every story too. You paddle until you no longer believe you can go any farther. And then suddenly, well after you thought it would happen, <laughs> the other shore starts to grow and it grows fast. The trees get taller, and you can make out the crags and the cliffs, and then the shore reaches out to you to welcome you home, almost putting your boat onto the sand. So I just want to encourage you, fearlessly write your story with God. Let your life be the art you leave behind as the legacy for your children. And in the middle of it, when the shore is still small and you don't seem like you're going anywhere or when discouragement is hit, 
let's just remember that he leads us forth in triumph from glory to glory and that it's the, the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony that brings freedom and life to the culture and the world around us.